0: But for this Sunday, we have got Ezra Nehemiah chapter 6. I've got a photo for you. Do you recognize this bridge? Do you recognize this bridge? Okay. What does it represent for you? Does it represent unfinished business? I think so, right? Unfinished business. And that's exactly where we are with Ezra Nehemiah at the moment. It's the story of of the people of God who really at the beginning was just one man, Abraham. And God said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. I'm going to create a family. And that's exactly what God did. That family ends up in Egypt. It flourishes until Pharaoh oppresses them. But God promised he was going to bless them to be a blessing. And so they are set free in Exodus. They enter the promised land. And then they go through a cycle of of obedience, of discipline, of enjoying God, and then forgetfulness, disobedience, and wandering away from God. And over and over that cycle repeats. Where we are in the story is that, they were taken captive by an empire of Babylonians, and they're taken far away from Jerusalem. But 70 years later, as God promised, they return. And God says, "I don't just want you to return; I want you to rebuild. I want you to see a whole new season of living with Me at the center of your life." And they try to do it, but but actually, right now, where we find ourselves, they have stalled. It's unfinished business. The temple that they were sent back to rebuild hasn't been rebuilt, and it's 15 years that have passed. That's a long time. But then, but then, the prophets speak, and they remind them of what's of first importance, and they start the building project again. They're back on track. They have a recovery of purpose and meaning. They wake up in the morning excited to go. But I want us to be quick quick to understand that this is a 15-year gap. I mean, that's a tremendous gap. And so what we think is just a turn of the page in our Bibles has actually been a real period of stalling, of despair, of up and down. I don't know um, if you saw the photo Leanne put up the last time we looked at Ezra Nehemiah, but this is us 15 years ago. If you wanted to have a look at how long 15 years is, just look at my face now, and then look at my face there. Think about your own life. Where were you 15 years ago? If you find yourself here able to identify with that phrase, unfinished business, a sense in which, man, I didn't think my life would be where it is now, I'm not where I was, but I'm not where I want to be, then you're in the right place. If you're feeling like there have been stirrings of God in the past that haven't been fully expressed, you're in the right place. I know I can relate. Um, part of why I'm so excited about going and visiting our friends um, in Texas soon, is my whole life I've been thinking, man, how do we do this thing of of working, of serving God. I have the privilege, this last week, I've been with the Reserve Bank on Wednesday, with the Auditor General on Friday. I've got my Executive MBA um, students handing in tomorrow. And I'm thinking to myself, man, when I'm, in, when I'm there, I want them to be thinking and talking about the what's really meaningful and the meaning of things. And likewise, when I'm here, I'm thinking, guys, work shouldn't be smashing us left and right. We should be able to to have a true north as we go through life and as we serve God in our marketplace. And and, and I feel something igniting inside of me of saying, oh, there's unfinished business here. I want to give full expression to it. And I know Leanne, when she's been reflecting, has often been thinking about just the role we get to play in, into Africa and what that could look like. And so in our own family circle, we're having these conversations of, of unfinished business. What does that look like for you as we gather tonight? And the thought way of thinking about this is, is what is it that prevents us from 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 stepping into that? What is it that, That means we have a dull edge rather than a sharp edge. What means that we're not ignited when we get up? What is our problem, is a way of putting it? What's our greatest problem? What's the root cause? And we're gonna do some investigation work because remember, this community got reignited after 15 years because truth was spoken. Two prophets in particular, Haggai and Zechariah. And so I'm gonna read from those two prophets as a way of reminding us of where we are in the story. This is Haggai first from chapter one. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Hey guys, spoke into a group of people with unfinished business, a group of people that had stalled, and he says, Consider your ways. Don't just be so busy working in your life, work on your life. Have you lost sight of of purpose and meaning and why it is that God created you uniquely? Isn't this a summary for C Point 2023? You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. As Mick Jagger would, would sing, I can't get no satisfaction. This is not God being mean, by the way. This is not God being mean. This is the reality of trying to live in a world that God's created with a soul that God has created, but without reference to that God. It's, it's, it's the reality. As sure as gravity is going to keep you to the ground, this is what happens to your soul when it doesn't find satisfaction in God. You will look for much, but behold, it'll come too little. Throughout, throughout history, God's been... Saying this promise, I will be your God, speaking to his people. I'll be your God, and you will be my people. But they lack belief in that. They didn't quite believe it. And again and again, they choose not to align with God. Now, that was Haggai. What does Zechariah write? Let's read together here. He writes in chapter 1 as well, Therefore, say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to him, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Haggai said, consider your ways. Zechariah says, return to me and I will return to you. Leave your evil ways and your evil deeds. See, I, I think our greatest problem is this. I think our greatest problem, which means that we, we kind of stalled, is, is in a word, unbelief. It's unbelief. You see, we ultimately have believed a lie that if there is a God, he doesn't really have our best interests at heart. He's, he's too busy taking care of his interests and what he wants to happen. And I can't trust him, therefore. And because I can't trust God, I need to take care of myself. I need to take situations and relationships into my own hands. I'm not seeking God first because I can't trust God. That, that unbelief is at the roots of so much of why we get stuck in life. It leads to a half-heartedness, a kind of a, a so-so contribution, a seven out of 10, a lukewarm. And we think that's normal. It's as if we believe it's possible to be a little bit pregnant, right? You can't be a little bit pregnant. There's no such thing. And I've often thought that our biggest problem when you just see conflict and you see the craziness of what's happening every day, I've often thought our biggest problem is selfishness. And as Africans, this is a big temptation, right? You see what's happening, you think, okay, I need to insulate myself. I need private medical aid, private security, private schools, private this, private that, my own generator, my own water, Jojo tank. I mean, we've trained and there's nothing wrong with that, but the problem is it can then get into our relationship with God where we're thinking, I can't trust anyone, including God, and I need to sort myself out. But you see, that selfishness or that self-centeredness isn't actually the real root cause. The root cause is a disbelief in God, an unbelief in God, which then means we think we've got to take care of ourselves. But if we truly understood who God was and we saw him rightly, it could change everything. Can I tell you that God looks at our hearts and our unbelief and he thinks, this is a tragedy. This is a tragedy. I don't want you to be piggy in the middle. I don't want you to be lukewarm. I don't want you to have incorrect thoughts about who I am and my goodness. I don't want you to believe lies. I am who I am, and I have an amazing track record of work in your life and in the lives of my people against all kinds of odds. And so this evening, I hope we can all take a moment to jump from then at that time to, to now and our own lives and honestly assess, are there parts of our life that struggle with unbelief, that don't have faith in God and his promises for our lives? Do we shape our decisions around a good God who we long to hear from and walk with, or do we, or do we assume that that isn't possible and we just try our best without him? In preparation, I felt like the father in Mark chapter nine who says to Jesus when he's looking for help for his son, I believe, help my unbelief. God, I believe you, but there are parts of my life where unbelief does take root. And so if our problem, the reason we're stalled, the reason there's unfinished business in our lives is unbelief. Then I hope you can make the leap to go probably what we need is a is a bit of belief in God and a bit of faith in God to see him rightly. And that's what we're gonna spend tonight doing. Spending some time as we read about God's track record of dealing with his people from Ezra chapter six. Remember, they've stalled for fifteen years. Haggai and Zechariah start speaking to them. They rise up and they go, You're right. God called us, He's got a mission. We're going to rebuild the temple, and they go for it. And you know what happens? They get stopped pretty much immediately by the governor going, whoa, 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 what are you doing here? Tatanai and his buddies, what are you doing here? Why are you rebuilding? We're going to write to the leaders in Babylon. We're going to ask them whether you've actually got permission. So please stop. Now, how discouraging is it at this moment, right? You've stalled for 15 years. You're like, finally, oh, no, my gosh, we see it clearly. You get stuck in, and now you've, now you've been shut down, effectively, and you have to wait for the response to come. So this is a huge moment. This is the cliffhanger we stopped on. There's a letter that's been written, they're getting one back now, which is essentially gonna be the no, go, or go sign. It's a little bit like the email you wait on after a job interview, or the WhatsApp, if you were not brave enough to ask her out face-to-face, you've, you've asked her out via WhatsApp, and you can see she's typing, right? This is what you are waiting on. Ezra chapter six, the reply is coming. Verse 1, then Darius the king made a decree and search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. In Ecbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Medea, a scroll was found on which this was written, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, let the house be rebuilt the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits and its breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury, and also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. So a letter was sent. The reply has come back favorably. How did they go about it? They went searching for records. Thank good, thank God for good administration. Thank God for diligent home affairs officials that searched through records. They didn't find it in the capital city. They found it in Ekbatana, which actually is the summer residence of the leader of that group of people. It's very hot in summer, so Ekbatana is where you go, and that's where they find record. Let's keep reading. Now, therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shepherd Bozani, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. They found a record, and now he's writing to the letter writers, keep away. That's a legal term from the time, meaning let them do as they do. Step away, step away. Let the work of this house of God alone, let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site, and now it gets even better. Moreover Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. We are talking tax rebates, people. How exciting is this? And whatever is needed, as a, as a finance person, how good is this? Whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, Let that be given to them day by day without fail. We're not talking once off people, we're talking annuity income. This is the dream that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. This Darius is not a Christ follower, he's the leader of the Persians and Medes. They defeated the Babylonians, who remember had defeated the Israelites. So this is like the biggest fish that's gobbled up the other fish and the little tiny one that has been let free. And he's saying, I'm not going to be outdone by the generosity of this leader from generations ago. I want to splash grace on this myself. Moreover, day by day, God has him in the palm of his hand and he's, he's bringing his people through and all the promises he says are true. And he's using someone who would, wouldn't identify with God at all. And you can start to see he's not a Christ follower with the following three few, few verses. He really wants them to pay attention. He says, Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this, or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Some pretty harsh consequences applied here. But the bottom line, as you can see, as we read the letter, or having had a cliffhanger waiting period, is that the job interview has been successful. The, the girl has said yes via WhatsApp, right? God has kept his promises. He's been true to his word. But this is even better than anyone could have even imagined. Yes, he has been true to what was originally said, but he's added more and more into the mix. You see, only God could have put all of this together, could have, could have put the the words of Haggai and Zechariah before his people, could have stirred up the letter writers to who think they're shutting the project down, but end up splashing such grace on the project, extra revenues, tax rebates, all that they need to day by day service the temple, only one person could have pulled this off from this. That's God. And can I tell you it's still true today that God has seen his kingdom come and his will being done. And the number one person that has to be involved whenever the king is advancing is God. God has to, by, by definition, he's the king. And we can be part of that solution until such point in time which we say, no, I'm not going to be part of the kingdom, in which case God will find someone else. But the bottom line is God will get it done. And if you, like them then, felt stalled and felt excluded from the plan and you kind of counting, like, does my life really count? I want my life to count. How do I, how do I deal with unfinished business? How do I get over my obstacles and my problems? I'd say to you, it starts with unbelief that you can look at this God who's been so good throughout history, turning defeat into victory over and over again. You must look to that God and say, you know, if I want my life to count for eternity, I want to build it on that which lasts for eternity, which is God and His kingdom. And we as a community are passionate about that. We might not be where we want to be yet, but we, we're saying, God, we want to, we want in a, in a world of endless distraction to be focused on who is eternally important, which is you, and we're so grateful we can look at your Son in particular, and we can be apprentices of your Son, the one who offered this apprenticeship to everyone, saying, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. We we want to be with Jesus. We want to become like him. We want to do what he would do if he was a C-pointer living in 2023. We take that seriously and we say, that's what's going to last for eternity. Guys, as Cyphericans, we can get distracted by trivial stuff almost on a weekly basis. If it's not stage eight load shedding, it's tabo besta doing something. And we're all like, wow, this is amazing. And, and we lose sight of the call not to unbelief. but to to faith in God, to be sure, like we're sure that we're sure that God is good and that he has this amazing invitation for us to be included in the building of his kingdom. And so if unbelief is our problem, and we've just got a little glimpse of how good God's been to this people, can we see that this is the same God who's calling us to believe in him today, to discard lies about him and his generosity and his goodness and to replace them with truth? And so for the rest of today, we're just going to read, continue to read the chapter and ask this question, well, what does belief look like? If unbelief's a problem, what does the belief look like? What it would look like as we look at their lives to get a glimpse of the life of faith, to the life of belief. So let's keep reading from chapter 13, I mean, verse 13. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Bozani, and their associates did with all diligence, what Darius the king had ordered. I think there was something about a beam that inspired them at this point. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia, And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. Can you feel it? There it is. The temple has been finished. The people came back and the temple has been finished. What does belief look like? What does a life of faith look like? Well, it looks like obedience. It looks like hearing from God, responding to God. And following through as God provides the means, as he splashes grace upon grace, as you do this, you walk with God in obedience. You see in, in, in verse 14, and the elders of the Jews built, they're built, they rolled up their sleeves. Some of them would have been, hey, I'm a perfumer, what have you got me doing here? Build, get going, all shapes and sizes, I'm gifted in this other area, build, this is what we need right now, obedience, uh, hard work. Blisters on the fingers. There would be no temple if there wasn't hard work. If there wasn't obedience. And I, I had a had a chat in the morning to parents. I said, guys, you can't steamroll in front of your kids. You can't remove hard work from their lives and, and give them a whole bunch of excuses. So it doesn't matter what happens in life. They're armed with, ooh, here's an excuse rather than a solution to the problem. It's like here here are my here are my ready-made excuses. My parents helped me my whole life to come up with excuses. You. I don't see a lot of parents here, so I'm going to skip over that little part. Uh, what I want to chat to is, in particular, young, young men or men coming in their careers, and I know there are a bunch of people that are looking for work, and so there are all those disclaimers, but by and large, we're at an interesting point in history where, uh, I remember at UCT, we actually had um, a practice of our top 20 at uh, the CA exams. We would use a pink slip if it was mainly ladies who'd come in the top 20, and we use a blue one if it was mainly boys. And let me tell you, it slipped to pink, and it never shifted from pink. It just stayed pink. And I think there's something in the in the modern water and the way it's worked out that, of course, there are things that need to change, gender-wise. There are many things. But the one thing I think is quite clear is if you need a job done properly, someone's going to stay focused on Todd, someone's going to follow through, no one's get distracted, you're probably looking at a young woman. This would be the one I'd want to do the job. Because the young man just Sometimes can get distracted and quite frankly don't follow through. The new PS5 is out, or something's happening, and they fall by the wayside. And it can be something you laugh about, but then you actually think, Are we going to be different as a community? Are we going to see God speaking to us, whether you're male or female, and we're going to roll up our sleeves and say, God, I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to go to bed tired. I'm going to have that warm, cool, painful sort of last, last little breath of air before I fall asleep, going, Yes, this life. I'm living counts. I'm glad I've been obedient to God. I'm glad I've, I've given expression to all that he's put inside of me and I'm not gonna find an excuse I'm gonna go for it. So the young men in this community say you, if you're kind of restless and you're swaying left and right, it might just be because you bought this lie that it's about the four hour work week and, and it's about the Cape Town lifestyle. It's not true. We were made for work. But then at the exact same time, I know that there are young men in our community who have seen their identity shaped by who they are in the marketplace. And they've said, man, this is the one place I'm winning. This is the one place I'm doing well. So I've blasted through 50, 60, 70 hours. Travel's no problem for me. I can, you know, read my Bible on the plane. And, and, and suddenly a life has developed where an identity that should be secured by God has actually been secured in the marketplace. But here's the thing. It's fragile. It's fleeting. It can be turned on and off depending on how the review's gone. And suddenly, uh, a lot of other categories of our lives have faded to black and white because we are dominated by this one area where our work determines our identity. So can you see there's like There's so many applications. That's why it's dangerous on a Sunday not to just hear the one. And all the overworked guys are like, yeah, the lazy guys need to work. And all the lazy guys are like, ah, you sucker, you're working too hard. You know, you've got to kind of get it right. But I trust all of us are asking God, God, which one is it true for me? Which one's true for me? And I know, you know, that there are amazing ladies in our community that are doing incredible work. But I particularly wanted to chat to the guys tonight to say, come on, let's roll up our sleeves and think about how we can live out this kingdom adventure and obedience together. And if you're doing that, I can just imagine you sitting here, sorry, if you're a guest, you're kind of going, okay, I came to church and I basically just heard a work hard speech. Obedience, right? Where's this gonna lead me? I mean, I'm, I'm... quite frankly quite busy already now you now you're going to send me down the route of of god being my boss i might feel a bit trapped or powerless by that certainly joy is going to leak out of my life I, I i want you to lean in to the next little bit let's keep reading what would this life of faith look like verse 16 and the people of israel the priests and the levites and the rest of the returned exile celebrated the dedication of the house of god with joy They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all of Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. What does obedience look like? Well, sorry, what does belief or faith look like? It looks like obedience, yes, but it also looks like joy. It looks like joy. It looks like the opposite of what you might think. But if you are doing what God created you to do and you're walking in in the light with him, joy is the result. You saw it there, how they celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. The whole point of coming out of captivity, of coming back and rebuilding the temple, wasn't so there's an architectural wonder. It was so that the people of God could then place him freshly at the center of their communities, that his, his glory would be given primacy. I always think of a C.S. Lewis, who at some point said, you know, when you put first things first, second things are better, third things are better, fourth things are better. You see, it's not like the glory of God makes everything else dull. No, the glory of God animates and puts life into absolutely everything else. A correctly ordered heart makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. Our life group yesterday went to the Stormers match. Amazing. Our kids running around. Woo. We lost. We lost. Now, an incorrectly ordered heart would have just been so sad. Like, why are you happy, kids? The Stormers lost, right? And and you can feel disproportionate passion. Some of the language demonstrated was along those lines. But a correctly ordered heart says, "Hey, man, there's so much goodness around here. Look at us, all these families, all these kids, the lights, the stadium. Woo, this is incredible. Stormers isn't at the top three of my my order of life's importance. Somewhere else, down here, in the entertainment category. And suddenly." What could have been a despairing moment is just like a, just a bit sucky. How many of us, though, have put things in the wrong order? And what should just be a sad moment becomes a despairing moment because we've got incorrectly ordered hearts. No, joy is the shalom of God, the peace of God, that wholeness, that completeness, that integration that just allows us to live life loving God and loving others. And so this evening, I ask you, what makes you joyful? What if you're really, really honest about that question and said, Paul, don't give me the Jesus answer that you know from Sunday school. What really makes you joyful? When do you really feel like, ah, it is well with the world? And I can only tell you that if it's anything other than just a realization of God's grip on you being more than your grip on him, if it's not an understanding of God's completeness, his thoroughness, his overallness, the themes we've been talking about, that joy is going to be fleeting, any other joy, and it's going to be robbed from you at some point. You see, our faith in God is rewarded through tough times and good times with a sense of peace in Him. And as Job said, as we were reminded this Easter, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. So Common Ground Point, are we joyful people? Or are we just as moany and groany as everyone else in those WhatsApp groups? Do you know that as leaders, life group leaders and others, one of the questions I ask myself, maybe not out loud, but something I'm asking myself is, is this a joyful person? Is this a joyful person? Is this someone who has seen who God is and is therefore joyful? Like that. I'm not talking about overcoming introvert personality types. sort of, you can be joyful and, you know, life of the party and joyful in the quiet type. I'm talking about someone who's just got a settleness around who who God is and what that means for their lives. So what does belief look like? It looks like obedience, it looks like joy. And then the final question we ask ourselves is, well, how does this happen? How, how does a life of faith start to take shape? What's going on? That's the final part that we'll read together now. Verse 19, Ezra chapter 6. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. What does belief look like looks like obedience, it looks like joy, and it looks like returning to God often. Returning to God often, being his apprentice, being, being in his presence. Do you see how the people did it? The first thing they did once they got the temple built up is they then celebrated Passover. They celebrated that, that incredible exodus out of Egypt, how with the blood of the lamb they were able to go free. From, from captivity. They were able to live under God's smile as he led them by fire at night and by cloud by day. They kept that festival. And I'm sure something inside of them said, hey, they were under slavery. and They were set free. We've just come through seven years of slavery and we've been set free. You see, it wasn't a history moment for them. It was a real present continuous of this is still God. This is still how he deals with his people and this is our experience, and they were able to have the pass over lamb together, which of course was what made all the difference between those that were able to enjoy the exodus and those that weren't. It was those that took shelter under the blood of the lamb that were able to be set free, and so they they, they, they would have relived that moment freshly, and they ate it and, and reflected on it. They they used all these markers and all these moments, not as some magical little symbol, but as a way of freshly declaring God's at the center, and they want to be in his presence often. They wanted to return to him often. They returned with their minds. They returned with their bodies and their souls, and they were stoking the flames of belief freshly. We want to do something of the same in a few moments when we respond with a communion meal, a communion meal which Jesus, on the last night he ate with his disciples, at the Passover meal, redefined the, the Passover meal, redefined the, the, um, this unleavened bread festival. He took bread and he broke it and he said, hey, you've always thought that was the bread from Egypt that they made under toil and bitterness. No, no, th- this bread actually was pointed towards my body, broken for you. And, and the cups that they drank, the cups of sin and all the ceremonial four cups that they drank, I, I want you to drink only one cup and that's my body, my, my blood, sorry, poured out for you. And they would have looked around. They would have gone, Jesus, where's the lamb? Like, that's the best bit, right? (laughs) Like, there's the lamb. And Jesus, of course, was saying, I am the lamb. I'm the one slaughtered for the sins of the world. My body is going to be put up on a cross. And all men and women for all time can say that their sins have been placed on that lamb. And that they can walk justified and set free. Because all I've done once. So there's no need to keep serving lamb. And that's very sad for all of us as we come to communion. But it is incredibly vivid for us to get into the shoes of those disciples and to think, what a good God. What an unbelievable God. And so faith looks a lot like getting with that God often and saying, I want, I want to believe that you are who you say you are. I want to study your life so that I, I fully get it, that I get it, that I get it. That I'm not going to be underworking or overworking because I'm, I'm just seeing you and I'm obedient to you and joy is the result. I don't want you to be leaving tonight heavily burdened by another list of things. That's why it's good news that I get to declare. I'm not giving the try harder talk tonight. Look at verse 22. It says, they kept the feast seven days with joy for the Lord had made them joyful. Can I tell you, there's no, there's no like fake it till you make it. Be joyful, everyone, like, hey, hey. it's impossible, right? Everyone can pick it up. But what, what God's saying is, I will make you joyful. I will turn your heart into hearts of, hearts of stone, into hearts of flesh. I will, I will aid you. I will pour grace upon grace. Moreover, tax rebates, you know, day by day. The same is true for us today as it was for them. They would have been looking at the Exodus going, guys, we've got a similar story. We can look at this and go, we've got a similar story over and over again.